For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com. Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. This week we're doing things slightly differently. Instead of news, we'll hear an excerpt from the DTB podcast on Mixtard 30. There are a large number of people still using Mixtard 30, over 90,000. We'll also find out later what to do with slightly elevated amine transferase levels. Uh, you'd also want to exclude viral hepatitis, which can cause nausea and uh, an ALT elevation. And finally, we'll hear the 17th century musical description of lithotomy. First of all, Mixtard 30. I have in the studio Ike Yanicho, who's DTP's editor. So, Ike, what's this all about? What's going on with Mixtard 30? The drug company never noticed. Recently announced that they were pulling the drug Mixtard 30 from the market from the end of December this year. Now, this decision affects 90,000 patients who currently use that drug and is going to cause massive disruption to them, the healthcare professionals who advise and treat them, and to the NHS as a whole. And this podcast uh, you recorded earlier, and it's talking about some of the issues involved. My name's Ike Yanacha, and I'm editor of DTB. And I'm joined by Cathy Moulton, Care Advisor at Diabetes UK. Hello. Uh, Dr. Wing Mei Kong, Consultant Clinical Endocrinologist and member of the DTB Editorial Board. Hello. And David Fazakali, DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello. The point of the podcast is to discuss issues surrounding the withdrawal of the insulin product Mixtar 30 from the UK market. Perhaps I could start with you, Cathy. What impact do you think the withdrawal of this drug will have? Well, Diabetes UK was very disappointed when we heard about the withdrawal, and uh, especially in such a short time space. Um, it takes away yet another choice from people with diabetes. Also, there are a large number of people still using Mixtard 30, over 90,000. So we made representation to Nova Nordisk, um, hoping that they would reconsider. Uh, they haven't done so, and that's when no Diabetes UK realised that our remit had to be to help um, healthcare professionals prepare for this changeover, to give them as much um, useful advice and support as we could, and also to use um, our links with the people with diabetes through our magazine balance to let them know that the change is coming so that it's not a huge shock to them at the end of the year. So, if I could summarise, a bad decision, but one that you're having to live with on, on behalf of the people you represent. Yes, that's right. Wing Mei? Uh, I think it's um, very disappointing from a clinical perspective. Guidelines, and in this country, other European countries the same, are that the conventional mixed insulin should be the first-line choice and the company are effectively removing the first-line biphasic insulin. So the clinical evidence doesn't support this move. Um, it's more expensive, so it doesn't make economic sense and it doesn't make clinical sense. So again, a bad decision. A bad decision. But let's take the, the company's perspective. One of the arguments they use is that, is that use of this particular product in the UK is going down anyway. Um, is it possible we're just seeing a, a, a natural decline which is just going to be accelerated anyway by this, this switchover in six months' time? I think one of the questions is why is it declining when our 
you know, nice guidance recommends it as first-line treatment. And I think we really need to look at why has the analogue biphasic insulin overtaken conventional insulin, even though it is the second-line advised treatment. Certainly my personal experience is that patients and clinicians who are training patients how to use insulin devices prefer the FlexPen, which is Novador Disc's disposable delivery device, for their biphasic analogue insulin. And it's a very easy-to-use pen, um, so that's attractive both to patients and also, obviously, to the healthcare professionals who are fairly confident the patients will use it correctly. Um, but Mixtar 30 is not available in that device, and really that's, you know, leads us to wonder to what extent is it device-driven, this, this drift from the conventional mixed insulin to the analogue mixed insulin. Um, and it's interesting in Germany, where there's been much more effective lobbying, I think, by healthcare professionals, that the conventional mixed insulin is available in the flex pen, whilst in the UK market it's not. So um, your view is that if it were, we might not seem quite such a decline. That that would be my my view from the experience talking to our diabetes specialist nurses, who I think in our trust they do most of the actual education and training of patients and I think that's the same across the country um, they like the flex pen and when asked well, why do you use it well they say well you suggested a biphasic insulin we gave the patients the choice and they like the flex pen so having nice guidance that sets out which insulin to go for is perhaps second to, to advising which device to go for because if you're saying it's driven by by device choice rather than insulin choice maybe we should focus more on the uh, cost economics of, of the devices rather than the insulins themselves. For patients starting insulin, which will usually be the situation um, when they're choosing which device to go on and they'll be shown the various devices, how they are, and it's, as I say, it's a very simple device and they say, yeah, I'll go for that one. NICE should have perhaps thought about that for, for products such as insulin where the device is a very important aspect of choice and actually have, have taken that as um, some form of negotiation with the companies. Um, which I understand is what happened in Germany, and their insulins are available in all the devices. They haven't been able to exert any control over what's being prescribed by determining which device they put insulins in. So, Ike, as well as listening to the longer podcast, which is on your podcast site, what else can people do if they want to, to get involved in this? Well, DTB is actively campaigning against uh, Nova Nordisk's decision. And if people support our position, they can go to our website um, and sign the petition that we have running uh, against uh, the decision. They can also complete our poll, which asks a question related to the, to the decision. And as well as listen to the podcast, they can also read uh, an accompanying editorial, which tries to discuss some of the issues around the withdrawal of Mixtar 30 and the consequences it will have. And that's all available on your website at dtb.bmj.com. Yes. Now Mabel Chu talks to two authors of a recently published rational testing article about what to do with slightly elevated amine transferase levels. I have with me Professor Howard Thomas and Dr Quentin Anstey, both from Imperial College London. Today we'll discuss the topic of their rational testing article now available on bmj.com. It covers what to do with mildly abnormal serum aminotransferase tests. Now, let's take the case of a fit 24-year-old male motor mechanic. He's been feeling just a bit off colour and slightly nauseous for a couple of weeks. 
On examination, he is a little tender in the epigastrium in the right upper quadrant, so I've ordered some liver function tests. These have returned, and they show that his alanine aminotransferase, or ALT levels, are just a bit above the normal range, 50 units per litre. Howard, what's the next thing I should do? I think the, the most important thing is to get a, a history, particularly of, of alcohol um, intake. In, in young men, the most common cause of this sort of uh, presentation complex would be uh, a degree of fatty liver with perhaps uh, some degree of alcohol-induced hepatitis. Um, that, that would cause um, distension of the liver and uh, be responsible for the ALT rise and at the symptom level also for the nausea. Uh, you would expect on the uh, other liver function tests uh, that the gamma GT would be increased and uh, the mean corpuscular volume, MCV, might be increased uh, as well. You would want to know the bilirubin and uh, the serum albumin. If the bilirubin was increased and the albumin decreased, then you would suspect that he's got a more severe version of this, this problem, uh, perhaps even with cirrhosis. Are there any other factors from the history we should ask about? Well, at an observational level, um, uh, as well, you'd want to know whether the individual was overweight. Um, often alcohol combined with a degree of obesity um, combined to cause fatty liver uh, and a more severe uh, form of the syndrome. Uh, you'd also want to exclude viral hepatitis, which can cause nausea and uh, an ALT elevation, but the ALT, um, particularly if it was early in the illness, you would expect to be markedly elevated, perhaps in the, uh, in the hundreds or even um, low thousands. Uh, in that context, if the patient had uh, been abroad, uh, you, you might suspect uh, hepatitis A. If the young man has any uh, risk factors uh, of exposure to hepatitis B, and they would be um, intravenous drug use or um, sexual activity, uh, then um, that, that sh should also be considered. Okay, so an alcohol history first up, then looking at other risk factors, a history of travel, intravenous drug use, any unprotected sex, all important issues we need to ask about. I think on, on the, the issue of uh, the viral causes of liver disease, it's important just to say that they are um, eminently treatable now. So it's important to find the cases of hepatitis B and C, um, uh, looking for high-risk individuals. And, and to the high-risk individual um, uh, definition, you might also add uh, first-generation migrants from uh, high-prevalence countries uh, of greater than 2% of the population of those countries uh, having hepatitis B or C. You know, if we identify those chronically infected individuals uh, and uh, offer them antiviral treatment, we can cure or suppress the infection very effectively and improve their chances of uh, a full, um, full life. What about the more innocuous viral infections? Well, that, that's a very good suggestion. Like uh, I mean, if he has a, a sore throat, virus, um, he's of the right age group for an EBV or glandular fever syndrome, uh, and the virus infects the liver as well as the lymphoid tissue, uh, and it would just look just like uh, a mild hepatitis A or B. Um, again, you could do um, a serological test for EBV or look for atypical lymphocytes, but the serological test would be best. Howard, thanks for that. Very helpful.
Quentin, could you take us through the next step? What should I be looking for in a clinical examination? Okay, well, the, the key things we really want to be looking for um, when assessing a patient with abnormal liver function tests really to examine for any stigmata of chronic liver disease or hepatic decompensation. So that's the thing in the foremost in your mind. So therefore, you're looking for evidence of jaundice. You're also looking, obviously, for um, things that may be associated, for example, with high alcohol intake, such as palmar erythema, uh, deep trans contracture, uh, spider nevi, gynecomastia, and so on. Uh, you then, if disease is very advanced, you may be seeing evidence of uh, distension of the abdomen with ascites, and um, finally, uh, evidence of encephalopathy with the characteristic uh, flapping tremor that is uh, described in the textbooks. Within our examination, one of the other areas we want to consider is stigmata of, um, that may indicate etiology. So we also need to be, for example, looking for evidence of tattoos, uh, body piercings, um, if there's evidence of track marks and so on, which may be consistent with uh, intravenous drug use or other risk factors for viral hepatitis. Um, clearly, one of the other features we need to look for is uh, evidence of the patient being overweight. So we now have a young man who says that he has at least four or five beers with his mates after work and a few more when he's out on weekends. He says he definitely doesn't do drugs and doesn't have a girlfriend at the moment. He's a bit overweight with a BMI of 26. Howard again, what would you do next? Um, it would be wise to um, take a more detailed alcohol history uh, and to help him really assess the number of units that he is actually taking. Lifestyle modification uh, would be one approach and of course you flagged up the BMI of 26 which is just in the uh, uh, overweight uh, 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 range. So I think those would be the two things that uh, I, I would go forward with on the that, that history that you've just mentioned. And I would then uh, follow the uh, ALT um, hopefully with reduced alcohol intake and a reduced uh, uh, weight uh, over a three-month period uh, in the expectation that the ALT would then come down to the normal range. Quentin, what if the patient is a teetotaler and quite slim? Bear in mind we're looking at an elevation in the alanine transaminase, the ALT. That's essentially usually consistent with a, a hepatitic drug injury, so an inflammatory process within the liver. And so our screening tests in that situation uh, would be focused on um, looking for evidence of, for example, a, a chronic viral infection. I think in that situation, you'd probably uh, start off with uh, having taken the history, as we've mentioned, uh, wanting to test the patient for hepatitis B. And the usual test in this situation is hepatitis B surface antigen, which would give you evidence of uh, a current hepatitis B infection. You'd also want to test for hepatitis C. Uh, and so this is a hepatitis C antibody. So it's a basic serology test. Um, you may also wish to add in, in this process, some autoantibodies to look for autoimmune liver disease. Uh, we may also want to do iron studies and ferritin levels to guide us with the presence of hemochromatosis. And then uh, we, we get into the slightly less common conditions such as Wilson's disease where we'd be looking at copper coeruloprasmin and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Okay, in someone who's asymptomatic without risk factors for viral hepatitis and with incidentally raised ALT levels, 
Would you do these tests immediately? To a certain extent, this is a matter of clinical judgment based on the uh, general situation of the patient. But if they are completely asymptomatic and you are simply looking at an isolated, mild elevation of ALT in the order of uh, maybe 50 or 60 international units, uh, I think the tendency would be to wait a period of time, say three months, repeat the tests to see if this is a, a simple uh, transient abnormality. Um, and it would be useful to take that three-month opportunity to begin to make lifestyle changes. Thanks. Now, a potential cause of elevated ALT levels that you talk about in your rational testing article is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Quentin, can you tell us some more about this? Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD as it's frequently referred to, should really be considered the liver's response to the metabolic syndromes. The liver, when fat accumulates within it, has a tendency to uh, develop an inflammatory process, and this in turn, in a proportion of individuals, but by no means all of them, can progress to significant scarring of the liver and uh, fibrosis or cirrhosis. And of course, when fat accumulates in the liver, and when these inflammatory processes are already underway, the addition of what may be normal considered, for example, a moderate amount of alcohol intake or the presence of uh, viral infection uh, will lead to an acceleration of liver injury. Is it confined to the overweight or obese? I think it's important to remember that there's substantial variation in ethnicity in terms of your body fat composition and deposition. About 23% of the UK population are obese. But when you're looking in the uh, more mild elevations of body mass index, if we're looking at a, a Caucasian, for example, there can still be increased risk of metabolic syndrome and with that steatosis, uh, less severe elevations in body mass index. Okay, how do we diagnose it? There are a number of steps, again, to diagnosing uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. These patients usually present as relatively asymptomatic, and it's often an incidental finding of a, a mild derangement of the alanine transaminase. What we need to look at, then, is uh, the uh, ratio of ALT and AST. We find that a ratio greater than 2 uh, is suggestive, although not diagnostic, of an alcohol-related liver disease, whereas a ratio of less than 1 often suggests a non-alcoholic uh, cause for liver injuries. Moving on from that, um, an ultrasound scan of the liver, which is, of course, a, relative, uh, a relatively easily available test, is often very useful. You get a slightly empirical measurement of increased echogenicity or a brighter appearance of the liver on ultrasound, which, again, suggests fat accumulation in the liver. So of course, you need to consider it on the background of the individual. So we're looking, again, for the features of the metabolic syndrome, the hypertension, insulin resistance or diabetes, uh, obesity and dyslipidemia. So with that sort of uh, constellation of features, when we begin to see these changes and then we have follow-up evidence on ultrasound, we're moving towards a diagnosis of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Of course, the best way to diagnose it is a liver biopsy. However, um, that's not something that is automatically necessary for every patient. And could our mechanic, as young as his early 20s, still be in danger of developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Uh, very much so. Um, we're all aware of the headlines uh, regarding the childhood obesity epidemic that we're experiencing in many countries throughout the world. So this is really a condition that can affect anybody at any age. Well, that brings me to the question of what to do next. Howard? Well, once we've got the diagnosis on the basis of the LFTs and the ultrasound, and uh, there are no signs of portal hypertension from the hematological tests, 
uh, then I think it's important to, to have a trial of weight loss. And I usually give the patient uh, six months to, to try and, and achieve this. And it's important at the same time to be telling them about other lifestyle issues. I think the other thing to re remember with the metabolic syndrome is that uh, it often goes along with uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And, and therefore, it's important to control any uh, hypercholesterolemia with diet and uh, statins or to treat any hypertension that, that may be evident. Thanks, Howard Thomas and Quentin Anstey. This podcast is linked to an article in our Rational Testing series, which is a series of articles on how best to use diagnostic tests. We've covered topics ranging from how to investigate hypertension in a young person to assessing for preoperative risk of bleeding and venous thromboembolic disease. If you have any burning topics you think we should cover, do drop us a line. The email address is practice.bmj at bmjgroup.com. Now, finally in this podcast, Mary Murray's The 17th Century Composer captures a musical lithotomy, the painful and traumatic operation to remove a bladder stone, a much more common condition in his time. Le tableau de l'opération de la taille. L'aspect de l'appareil. Frémissement dans le bruyant. Résolution pour y monter. Parvenu jusqu'au haut. Descente du dit appareil. des souilles entre les bras et les jambes. Ici, l'on tire les souilles. 
porte dans le lit. And that music was with kind permission of the Orpheon Society. If you want to find out more about the music and about the operation, you can follow the links on the podcast homepage to take you to their website. That's all this week. Next week we'll be back looking at why temperature affects myocardial infarctions. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.